Welcome back everybody to the Scarlet Thread Society. Tonight we've got a first time guest. I anticipate that we will be seeing more of this individual in the future. And we've got a real, real relevant topic for you tonight, especially in light of recent world events. If you would like to introduce yourself. Hello everyone, this is Debbie. It's uh, wonderful to have you here. Thank you for having me. I suppose. Me. Pleasure. Oh, I messed it up already. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. Thank um, you. For... Okay, no, you go. How about? How do I? How do I wait? Do I get an extra <laughs> second to wait. <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. Um, if we could start with just maybe a little bit, well. Why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about tonight, and then we can start with your relevant background before we get right into the topic. Okay. Is international finance, specifically the Bank of International Settlements, and the architecture of how money actually moves around the world. Oh. So to you, Daddy, what spurred your interest in this topic how long have you been observing these things, and what is your sort of background or knowledge base for these conversations? Well, what I wanted to know, oh, oh no, I'm nervous. Oh no, okay, I need one second. Take all the time you need. Okay, okay, I think I found a place to start from. I'm sorry, I thought I thought you were starting it, so I got, I was just going to bounce off. Okay. Um, well, I had always studied history, and then once I became aware of global reserve currencies, that then changed almost everything that I thought I had understood, and it gave me a new understanding of both global politics, um, and how the economy is formed, um, what had once been mystified to me became much clearer. And now I wish I could paste this chart into the beginning of every history book. The global reserve currencies are a system that began 600 years ago with the Portuguese. Every 80 to 110 years, there is a cycle turnover where a new empire rises, has a very strong navy, and then holds the global reserve currency, which gives them immense power over not only geopolitics, but every aspect of the global economy. After the Portuguese, the global reserve currency went to Spain, then the Netherlands, then France, then Britain, and then the USA. This has always occurred in 80 to 110 year intervals, and a changeover always occurs after a large global conflict, which usually finally de depletes the holder of the global reserve currency of the necessary amount of capital to fund their total control over the financial system and to sustain a strong navy, because in the age of globalization, who controls the seas controls world trade. As for the past 600 years, most of world trade is traveling over the seas. So I realized that the global reserve currency is not only a financial mechanism, but a military mechanism, and it is driven by having a strong navy. The current age of the USA and what people consider um, a dominant, near insurmountable global power, I realized is actually part of a long-standing historical cycle. And these powers always rise and always fall. And I realized a lot of consternation that occurred about 
people commenting about the reign of the USA ending was maybe a misunderstanding between two parties about what that means. People thought people, people believe people were implying that the USA will disappear or end, never to be heard of again, or they think that it would be an immediate fall. But that's not true. It's just the understanding that no country can remain the apex predator indefinitely and that there are natural limits to even the largest empire because eventually you run out of people um, financing, you run out of the commodities needed to fuel that empire. Um, the empires I mentioned who were past global currency reserve holders didn't disappear. Um, France is still very powerful. Britain is still very powerful. The Netherlands, Spain, Portugal, uh, these all still exist. They just simply do not exist as the number one in the world. And there is a currently... So if I can interrupt right there right away, mm -hmm. um, maybe just as a little bit of an icebreaker, but can we seriously say that the Iberian nations are any sort of influence on the world scale whatsoever? I mean, yeah, they technically still exist on maps, mm -hmm. but what's going on in Iberia these days? <laughs> well, anything? I would say Spain is a rather powerful country still. I think more the point is that people become upset when it's implied that the USA might have its reign as the world number one end or as the holder of the gold reserve currency, and people well, think it's foolish to bet against the dollar. But I think that we need to look at how history plays out and understand that there is a natural end point to each empire and of ebb and flow. France is still very powerful. The UK is still very powerful. But they no longer hold the reserve currency, which at the time allowed them near total dominance. And what needs to be considered is... What happens when the USA no longer holds total dominance? What happens when the dollar is no longer the most in-demand currency in the world? So to begin considering that question, let's break it down into its component parts a little bit here. Mm -hmm. What exactly is a reserve currency? And in brief, how do reserve currencies actually work? So reserve currencies tend to be the currency that is used to facilitate most global trade and is often backed by a country which has the strongest navy as that is the, the force that is used to back the currency. If you can control the seas, then you can control global trade. So a global reserve currency is almost... It's a, it's a twin manifestation of a country that has a very strong naval presence and has a strong currency. And those two factors reinforce each other. Usually, when a global reserve currency is transferred over, it is because a large conflict has occurred and the former holder of the currency can no longer sustain the inertia needed to have both completely dominant naval presence across the world, and to sustain global trade. So this is what was once upon a time referred to as gunboat diplomacy <laughs> then, right? It's that idea? Yes, to an extent, yes. And the difference now, which I understand, which is why many people believe the dollar cannot be defeated or it's foolish to think the dollar will fall anytime soon, is we are in a global reserve currency cycle. So many economists say, um, so after World War I, the UK lost many men, a lot of money and a lot of steam. And then we went from the pound sterling to the dollar. In 1921 is when many economists placed the start of the USA holding the global reserve currency. So if we look at historical cycle of the past 600 years, a global reserve currency has 80 to 110 years, which means that magic year 2030, which we've heard mentioned by everyone from 
Davos to many billionaires as this from real life um, cartoon villains year. to literally everyone else. <laughs> Where everything changes is also going to be the final, what would be the upper limit of any reserve currency's reign. And what is different this time, which people argue, is that we are in the age of the global reserve currency being decoupled from gold, thanks to President Richard Nixon, who moved us off the gold standard. And that is what created... Um, the current issue of our hyper-financialized economies, and as I'm sure many people have seen, this has become a topic in the past few years, many have asked what happened to the United States after the 70s, everything started going downhill, they feel there was a massive, massive and growing wealth gap that has only continued to gain inertia, and many argue that Changing off the gold standard is what kicked off this new era where we live in the hyper-reality of both a global economy running on the internet, decoupled from gold, and attached to Nixon bucks. One of my very favorite novelty accounts on Twitter mm -hmm. is What the F Happened in 1971. And all it does is post the gold decoupling inflation graph next to news items and it's it's absolutely fantastic okay after this you're gonna have to send me the link i must follow that <laughs> i'll do that and then this also coincides with a theory that i have and people frequently ask me what i'm saying when i say the modern economy is alchemy but it's this idea of creating wealth out of energy, both in reference to the petrodollar and this idea of we transfer energy and commodities into wealth. And the problem is, is as is frequently argued, while we hold the global reserve currency, we control the global system, we have the strongest military. You know, many ask, rightfully so, I understand who can challenge this, and the problem is, is post-2008, we have entered the age of quantitative easing. So not only are we in the Nixon dollar era, we are reaching the end of a historical cycle of a global reserve currency. We are in an era of quantitative easing, which is, as is argued, not printing money, but as explained by Bernanke, it's electronically creating money. <laughs> So, so they're not printing it. They're literally just pretending it exists. Yes. All of the, the major banks, they have accounts with the Fed. And the Fed, this has been explained several times by Fed chairs. They go into their accounts and create a larger number, which creates liquidity. The problem is, is you can print as much money as you want. So that's, that's it. They just make it up. Yes, there are many people who will come and argue and explain, no, it's much more complicated. And it's more complicated, but it, this is essentially what it is. And all of the Fed chairs will admit that this is what happens. The problem is you can create as many digits on computers as you would like. You can print as much money as you'd like. You can pursue the quote unquote infinite liquidity policy, which is what has occurred since coronavirus. But that money purchases real things, which are made with commodities and energy, and, and those have hard limits. This is how you enter inflationary stages. Because we have this disconnect in philosophy, and many argue, this is, I get asked about modern monetary theory a lot too, there are people who argue, well, money doesn't exist, it's not real, and in one sense, yes, it, it's an entirely created system, but we need to remember that it is still used to purchase real things which are created out of the earth. And these are finite resources. Energy is finite resource. Human labor is a finite resource. 
commodities, finite resource, and the minerals and rare earth elements and metals that create everything, including even the ability to make these digits on computers, are all finite and all require massive inputs of energy and time and things that exist in the real world to make. So at a certain point of printing, you and printing out of thin air, you have almost completely decoupled the entire financial system from the physical world we live in, which is concerning to some, including myself. Yeah, when you put it like that, it almost sounds like that's a bad thing. And um, what I frequently say as a, as a simple version of this is you can print money, but you cannot print energy and you cannot print commodities. The other aspect of this... That seems reasonable to me. <laughs> the other aspect of this system and why people believe that the current financial hierarchy is perhaps more durable than it has been in the past are the creation of several central banks and then a little-known entity called the Bank of International Settlements, as you alluded to before, that is the central bank of central banks. Um, the Federal Reserve is not the final stopgap for the system. Even the Federal Reserve answers to the Bank of International Settlements. And many aspects of the global financial system and several large world conflicts have, at their very root, been highly influenced by the Bank of International Settlements, which is something that I think is essential now, to Now, do you want to tell us what world. some of those conflicts are? Sure. So the Bank of International Settlements began in 1930. During the 1930s, due to the rise of tensions on the continent, many banks moved their gold reserves to the Bank of International Settlements. So this is pre-1971. So still we have all of our, our, the currencies are tied to gold. So each country, the gold reserves are, and the security of their gold reserves are essential to the security of the country and the ability of their currencies to retain their value. As Hitler is moving through Europe, people move their currencies. They move their currencies to the United States because it is considered an island fortress quite far away. And they transfer their money to the Bank of International Settlements. Once World War II occurs, which is something that I hadn't ever heard, even after studying World War II, what I thought was quite a bit. The Bank of International Settlements still continued to function through all of World War II. Um, the action they took was to simply not directly hold meetings, but many very prominent Germans were on the board, um, including like the director of IG Farben, um, many German bankers, and many people who were later prosecuted for international war crimes. Um, World War II, the Greece that allowed the German Empire to continue was the Bank of International Settlements. Uh, the gold payments all still went through. This is something really important to understand. Uh, well, later on, what we have is SWIFT was formed, but that was in the 1970s after Nixon decoupled the U.S. dollar from gold. So if I can jump in here mm -hmm. for a second then, because we're talking so much about gold as a resource, gold reserves, and gold being mm -hmm. moved around, is there any mm -hmm. interplay here with the classic conspiracy of Nazi gold and missing gold? Well, um, I would say it's even... it's. In, it would sound like it's a crazier conspiracy than that, but it's actually true that the Bank of International Settlements still allowed 
Nazi Germany to transfer their gold to them, and it was re it was processed as payment. Um, for example, when they went to the Czech Republic, the gold from the Czech Central Bank was transferred to Germany's Reich Bank by the Bank of International Settlements. Um, the gold which they acquired all through World War II still went to the Bank of International Settlements and was, was processed, quote-unquote, ab above board. This was essentially a international an international agree not agreement but this was an international silent silent uh, not approval I'm a sort of a wink here. a nod and a handshake sort of yeah deal, it was right? I mean it was allowed to happen. I mean, what I realized happened recently with, with Russia. So Russia, you know, try oh, we'll cut off what we would like from SWIFT. I mean, this was a top, sorry, this is what the word I was looking for. This was a top-down tacit approval of what was occurring because all of, all of the payments still went through. The German Empire still had energy. It had resources. It wasn't entirely an independent empire. They still needed outside commodities and outside energy. And what allowed for this trade to occur, to acquire what they needed to fuel this empire, was the Bank of International Settlements allowing their payments to move through. So this was something that fundamentally shaped all of World War II and what is taught to us as this final world conflict and a complete breakdown of all social mores, all order, all international finance was was actually run by this institution on which every member, almost every member of Access and Allies sat on. That the founders of the Bank of International Settlements were Germany, Belgium, France, the UK, Italy, the Japan, US, and Switzerland. So these were the major players in World War II who were all members of the same organization who still allowed all the payments to move through. That was pretty outstanding to me when I first learned that and understood the totality of what that meant. And yet people think we're crazy for thinking some shadowy cabal runs everything, huh? And it's, I mean, that is the group right there. And what they have been saying is, the past few years now, the Bank of International Settlements, after the war, because of this, there was uproar, and it was technically dissolved. They dissolved it, and then it just immediately kept moving along. And this could be a whole many topics that both the U.S. and United Kingdom worked against having it dissolved. So the Bank of International Settlements continued forward after World War II, even after many members of its board of directors had been charged in war crime tribunals. So just as an editorial note here for the listeners, if that trick sounds absurd, you should be aware of just how often that sort of thing happens because that's exactly how certain domestic spook agencies get away with what they do. They'll declare a project ended and then just keep working on it anyways. You'll find that that's a very common trick to get rid of paper trails or pretend to an oversight board that something's not happening. It's very, very, very common. And that's part of what drives people like me insane, because that is a way to terminate oversight. Exactly. Then after World War II, you had this period where the USA was now completely dominant. They had the global reserve currency. They also now had the world's strongest military power. Their only obstacle was Russia, or the USSR at the time. But they had everyone's gold because many had moved their gold to them 
while the continent was at risk. They also had not just central bank gold reserves, they had treasures. Um, these were held in places like the New York Federal Reserve, which many don't realize. The New York Federal Reserve, which still is in New York City in a vault deep in the bedrock, has more gold than Fort Knox. Fort Knox is used more for military and strategic reasons, but it is not the largest gold reserve in the United States. So this also gave the U.S. an incredible amount of leverage power because very far away from everyone else, they held all of their gold. They had a very strong military to protect it. They had the Atlantic Ocean to protect it. And this is basically how much of the post-World War II world order was forged. So perspective here, mm -hmm. and please correct me if I'm wrong in this claim, mm -hmm. What essentially happened is all these other world powers accidentally blackmailed themselves with their own gold by shipping it here. To to a slight extent, yes. But I mean, they also there were many things they benefited from. Like we also, arguably, the U.S. kept their gold safe for them. It may have disappeared. Um, some argue, though, that if you look at the, the leadership and power structure of the Bank of International Settlements, it, you then start to see World War II as, as a money laundering operation. Um, certain countries who were run over by Hitler and had their gold and treasures taken had that money laundered through the Bank of International Settlements and it was given as, as payments to members of the Allies. Um, this is I'm sure a familiar concept to many, uh, as modern wars have shown, that these often become perpetual motion machines. It's a conflict that is fueling itself, essentially. Yeah, speaking of that, did we ever find out what happened to Libya or Iraq's <laughs> reserves? Oh boy. Well, that's... I have seen with Iraq specifically, I've seen people argue, well, that was... There's many, if people aren't familiar, there's many pictures on the internet of U.S. service members sitting in large, like, trucks of gold and gold bars. I've seen people argue that, well, that's technically not... Shipping containers, <laughs> dump trucks. Yes. I've seen the argument and heard some people in the military tell me, well, that, was, that wasn't necessarily bank reserve gold. They said, if you notice, those were very, like, quote-unquote, rough bars. So they weren't perfect bars. They're claiming that that was simply because gold was trying to be smuggled out by Saddam Hussein and his allies and wealthy members of Iraqi society. And they were arguing, well, it was all just melted down hastily and we were you know, moving it for transport. But clearly a massive amount of wealth was siphoned out of the country and I don't think it was tracked very well. Um the other thing that happened after World War II is you then had the foundation of NATO. Um, you have the USA, who has everyone's gold reserves, and they're running the global reserve currency, the almighty dollar. And they tell everyone, well, remember, you can always, you can always come to the U.S. and get your gold back. And remember, U.S. dollars and gold res U.S. reserves that you hold, you can always retrieve for the equivalent in gold. And this occurs until Nixon decides we're going to move off the gold standard as he's facing a, a major inflationary shock and a major economic situation. This is something you could speak about for hours, maybe even days, weeks, um, where the world is fundamentally changed in the 1970s because he decouples the dollar and therefore the global reserve currency from gold. This is during the development of what is at the time ARPANET. We enter the age of the internet. So then you have theoretically unlimited funds that can be created and moved around the world. And two years later, you have in 1973, you have SWIFT, which is started and that's the society for worldwide interbank finance telecommunications as 
Swift is developed and then connected to the internet, you then have a a global, a vertically, a vertically integrated global financial system, and theoretically the ability to cut off or grant access to the system. As we've seen, and this is now starting to enter popular conversation because of sanctions against Russia, even if you are one of the world's major powers and you yourself have gold and energy and commodities, you can be removed from this at the, at the decision of those who, can, who control it. And it started to create an understanding of just the extent to which there's almost total financial control. And then the question becomes, who, who controls this? Is this a force that could be supersede the power of any nation state? Um, is there? Is it possible that all of these groups working in tandem could forge into a single currency? Is there? There's many theories that there's various plots to, but I will say the Bank for International Settlements has themselves said, we're going to move to CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies, and... And every time the Bank of International Settlements endorses something, it tends to happen because they simply control all world flows of finance. So for me, what people think is some kind of... Because the ability to move anything in a non-local market is ultimately at their discretion. Yes. And I mean, as... We move forward into this age of hyper-financialization. We have currency decoupled from gold. There becomes the question of, and I think people are starting to feel it as they watch ripples across markets, across their retirement accounts, across things that they thought would never happen, is if the whole system starts to go, then what happens, and there is a belief by some, including myself, that at the point of disaster, I mean, those, I don't think those in power are going to go down easily or willingly. And there's a belief that instead of taking the very hard crash, we might simply, they might decide it's time to transfer over to central bank digital currencies and say, well, now... We're on the CBDC system where everything is on a ledger, on a blockchain, <laughs> that infamous, now almost dirty word, the blockchain. And there <laughs> is a belief that there could be an attempt to divert the fall of the dollar and the dollar's allies, so NATO, by it transferring to a central bank digital currency. So at this point, gosh, and you know, we're only barely scratching the surface yeah, I already. Feel in each this, of these topics could easily be an entire series. <laughs> yes, they they certainly could. So let's maybe take this piecemeal. Okay, let's make it more granular. And I like that. The first thing. I feel like we should do mm -hmm. as responsible scholars <laughs> is give ourselves a plausibility check. You know, how likely mm -hmm. is this to actually happen? The reality we're staring at right now clearly hurts. Almost everyone's feeling the economic pinch, mm -hmm. but are we at the apocalypse threshold yet? I personally... I think in the next 10 years, so I'm historical cycles. In the next 10 years, I think the dollar will reach its breaking point. The other, uh, for those who follow Ray Dalio, we are also at the 250-year empire cycle, also converges on 2030, um, on top of several bubbling world conflicts and a rather serious inflation problem brought on by quantitative easing. I tend to which surprises people. I'm not actually a big believer in the apocalypse because societies and empires 
for tens of thousands of years have always found a way to continue and claw back from even extreme disaster. Uh, I tend to believe empires just simply mutate, so I believe it's... They wane, but they don't die, <laughs> I believe right? that things might change profoundly, but I think they will be able to continue. I mean, there's a massive amount of inertia in the world currently, and... As we've even seen in the past year, I mean, people thought we were at true apocalypse with Russia, but I mean, Europe is still buying Russian energy. I mean, the trade is still going through. Uh, globalization is a is a tricky beast, but I think. Well, and it be... was only just a few weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe it was even just last week that we found out that the U.S. was tacitly still allowing any number of Russian companies and banks to do business despite being sanctioned oh, for just that yes. reason, to protect the precious yes. markets. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's the, the sanctions are very targeted and they are not all consuming. We still have a lot of entanglement with the Russian economy. I think the confusion occurs because for many years, Russia was derided as, you know, they would say things like, oh, it's a third world gas station or it's a country with a gas station attached. Well, first of all, even if all you have is energy, energy is the root of every single thing that happens in the world. <laughs> everything is, everything is energy. To even have the digital green world, it requires massive amounts of fossil fuel inputs. Um, not just to power the station, electrical stations or gas or natural gas or oil, but mining, which is the foundation of the entire modern world. You need minerals, metals, rare earth elements for any sort of computer you're running. So energy is incredibly important. And Russia not is not the one... It's not the one export economy that people were led to believe. They have many other very critical exports, as we've seen, food, grain, fertilizers. They are critical in uranium. I, I see this all the time. People dispute, well, they don't really have that much uranium. What they can do, though, is uranium to be useful for nuclear weapons and for power plants. It needs enrichment and refinement. And those are very specialized, complicated processes. And Russia still controls a vast amount of that which was our own doing because after the fall of the USSR, we said, we gave them an offer. We said, let's divert your massive industry that is geared towards creating nuclear weapons to creating uranium for nuclear power plants. And we, we smartly, and I think rightly, gave them an offer. And many plants in Europe and US, they, they require this specific type of uranium specific uranium rods that tend to be made by russia so it's a complicated economy and it is also the powerhouse that built the european union uh, it was very cheap nearby russian energy helped create the powerhouse of germany and the european union that's again another whole entire topic so i'll stop there so on that note mm -hmm. there is something that I've kind of long thought that I want your thoughts on, and yes. it's directly related to something we covered a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. A lot in our modern age is made of the Cold War, or mm -hmm. the pseudo-Cold War, between the U.S. and China, mm -hmm. when it's very clear to me that despite the pseudo-pariah status of the Chinese Communist Party, mm -hmm. China as a country is basically treated as capitalism's greatest manufacturing hub as opposed to any sort of actual enemy. So is that sort of a related concept where Russia is uranium and energy production wearing the face of a heel and China is the same thing for manufacturing where it's treated as an enemy to keep up the legitimacy farming of various nation states whereas it's treated as an integral part of the actual economy while they do this elaborate kabuki theater? Am I right in thinking that, or is that actually wrong? No, no, you're absolutely on the right track. And back to the 1970s, part of the reason that the U.S. was able to eventually topple the USSR is night so... 
1971 moves us off the gold standard. In 1972, the U.S. went to China and Kissinger and co. went and made, made a deal with them because we understood this is a country that has massive potential capacity. It has a large amount of people who could be workers. We went to China and said we made a deal with them. This became the Shanghai Communique, where we acknowledged one China policy, several other important political factors, and that is what opened up and started the relationship between China and the USA, with China as an incredible manufacturing hub. And also, this was a political play to further the divide, which already did exist between China and USSR, they'd always had a complicated and often frosty relationship. Um, Bush Sr. was another major player in this. So it's very true. We went to China and said, okay, we acknowledge your, what you want to acknowledge, which today this is, I'm sure people are say, understanding very relevant. That the reason that they worked with the USA was because we acknowledged one China policy. That was the key factor in this. Um, Kissinger later called it constructive ambiguity, which created a deep, long-lasting source of tension and distrust. Um, but we went to China and said, let's work together. We'll acknowledge your political realities. You acknowledge our economic realities. This is another thing that took a major, uh, took away a lot of fuel from the USSR. So China started manufacturing for the U.S. We, the process of offshoring to Asia began. This is, as we, you were saying earlier, this is the 1970s. These are all major events that occurred in the 70s that directly relate to today. And that was a major source of change, and that is part of what fueled the final dissolution of USSR too. So... Now, the second part of that, the second thing I wanted to address, with that mm -hmm. bargain being made with China, and depending on just how mm -hmm. the waning of the American empire goes, does that make China the next natural choice to lead the CBDC charge? Or do you think well. that these cabals have another player in mind to spearhead the next world order? So I have, I do have thoughts on this, which again, this could be a very long series in itself. It is the second largest economy currently, and they have a massive workforce, hundreds of millions of workers. Um, we see that at play Apple, which is considered you know, the world, this multi-trillion world's largest company. On the record, they've said um, we're able to be this because of China's floating population, which is this massive group of workers that they organize. Um, the CCP organizes this massive trench of like 350 million people to be the most productive they can for the most amount of industries they can. So they, they move people around. It's basically like a centralized shifting of the economy. And it allows you to do things you could never do anywhere else. So people have said as tensions with China have increased, and you know everyone all of a sudden is convinced that they uh, know how to control the world. They say, well, why don't you just move to manufacturing to one of our allies? Why don't you move to Indonesia or Philippines? And Apple executives have said they don't have 200 million people that we can use at our beck and whim. So a lot of American prosperity is built on having China's massive manufacturing base. I, China is now second largest economy. They have the sixth largest gold reserves. They are working on building them up more. I don't want to digress too much, but this is another topic that's very relevant to current power. Is well, that, gold reserves. that is extremely relevant. And uh, maybe we don't divert on that tonight. Yeah because we're already as deep in as we are, right. but that is something I had on my own notes yeah. to talk about. I have so that maybe too. we come back to that. Wonderful. But yeah, so China has six largest gold reserves. They don't have they don't have 
the military capability yet, which a lot of people, and I, I agree when they say they think it's a fantasy that China could seriously challenge USA and NATO at the moment, but they're growing, they work very hard, and they each year continue to grow their military capabilities. This is another topic that I don't want to diverge too much on, but it's relevant to this. And something that I believe is happening because China thinks in much, they operate on thousand year cycles. They are thinking, they think on a much different time scale than we do here. They, well, I'm going to interrupt here again, mm-hmm. and I don't want to blow up your train of thought no, too please, bad. Go ahead. But on the Scarlet Thread Society here, we have a habit of getting weird. Uh And I've claimed more than once that I think most of Chinese history is completely fabricated by the CCP in order to mythologize their own state. I'm not so sure they do operate on thousand-year cycles. You know, there's very few first-hand texts still in existence that can prove any Chinese culture existed before 1000 AD. Anyways... Oh my goodness. Well, I will say, um, (laughs) currently, I believe they're looking to, and this really ties back to the beginning, um, they're looking to make a new, well, we've heard about the global Belt and Road Initiative, is they're looking to make a new Silk Road. This is where this ties back to what we were speaking about earlier with the global reserve currencies. If someone, if people remember, the first was Portugal, 1450. Global reserve currencies started after we started doing massive trade to China and brought back paper money from China. So I know this is maybe too precious, but... The idea of what was the genesis of the global reserve currency returning home to me is very intriguing. The other reason I actually think this is a a quite possible thing grounded in reality is, as we also pointed out, you need a strong currency and a large economy, and you need a very strong navy because trade goes along sea lines of communications. I think the CCP is very smart and very strategic. They know that they are not there yet. They cannot challenge U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy yet. But they can control trade on land. I think they're looking to the past and saying, what if we bypass that for now? What if we make such a vast and profitable land trade route system that we can skirt the historical precedents for absolutely requiring the most powerful navy and air force and we create our own trade routes overland trade routes which i don't think necessarily mean they can be number one in the world but as many have pointed out if we move to a multipolar world order and they have entrenched trade routes. They have all of these ports and deep sea ports that they've been building. They have overland trains. Then I think it's very possible that China could could be another major player. This could be um, a multipolar world order situation. That they can at least make the argument at any rate. Mm-hmm. And they've been purchasing, which again, this is a separate topic, but they've been purchasing mines, ports, land, um, I, the property portfolio they've amassed across the world is pretty impressive. Specifically in continental Africa, of course. Mm-hmm. And Europe, too. And if you control, you know, this starts getting philosophical. Not only do they buy ports, um, they're investing in commodities production, investing in mining, I mean, if you control every element of the supply chain at a certain point, does that become more relevant than being able to patrol the supply chain with your military? If someone else controls every other aspect of that supply chain. That's a very good question, isn't it? So that's a little food for thought for everyone. 
Um, so, actually, I like that enough that I'm going to say to you, is there anything uh-huh. else you'd like to say tonight, or should we leave our audience on that cliffhanger and maybe do this again sometime? Um, I think we could leave it there, and if you'd like me to come back, I would love it, and maybe I'll be a little less nervous and a little more eloquent. <laughs> I think you did a wonderful job, and I would absolutely love to have you back, because I have a whole list of things we didn't get into that I think are critically important to this discussion, and I'm sure you do too. Yes, thank you so much, and thank you for being very patient and um People don't know I've never done a podcast before, so that's why I'm rather nervous and a little scatterbrained. But this was very interesting, and I like that we came up with new routes to go through, and it sounds like a lot of our notes converge, so I'm quite excited about that. Excellent. One last question for you. Yes. Is there anything you would like to plug to my audience Um, anywhere they can find you, things they can do to learn more about this in the meantime, just things you'd like to advertise? Um, I wish I did. I'm just Deddy on Twitter, and I don't have anything else at the moment, but I'm trying to sit down and perhaps write out and flesh out some of these ideas. I know frequently people request um, if you could elaborate, so I'm working on that, but nothing at the moment. Okay, so is Deddy your handle? They can search to find you, or oh, yes, it's um, it's a capital zero, D D E T T E is the handle, and then it's Deddy. So that's at a debt on Twitter. The O is a zero. Make a note of that, folks. This is one you'll yeah. want to follow. Thank you.